This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to. And the Oscar goes to. The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's, who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here today with two beloved returning guests. We've got Julie Miller. Hello, hello. And Hilary Busis. Oh, really rolling out the red carpet. <laughs> I really get overly excited. Not overly excited. You guys are very exciting, but I feel like I make it sound like every, the regular hosts are not exciting. But you guys are very exciting and have two really exciting interviews today. Um, Julie, let's start with you. You talked to Stacey Lee, the director of the Hillsong documentary series on FX, which started as a Vanity Fair article. This is a real homegrown project here. Um, and you are sort of our in-house expert on scandal. Um, so you felt like a natural fit to talk to Stacey about this documentary series. The first two episodes have aired already. The second two are yet to come. Uh, what did you guys get to talk about? Uh, well, I should say that it's based on reporting by Dan Adler and Alex French for the magazine. Um, and it was really fascinating because we talked a lot about Carl Lentz, the celebrity pastor at the center of the scandal, um, who was friends with Justin Bieber, even housed Justin Bieber for a month and a half. Um, during Justin Bieber's sort of personal crisis, I guess, of faith. Um, but after Carl was fired in 2020 from Hillsong, he went off the radar. He was the most public, probably, pastor in the U.S., and he just sort of disappeared. So Stacy managed to track him down, him and his family, who are living in Sarasota, Florida now, and he agreed to open up for the first time about his experiences, his extramarital affairs that resulted in his firing. Um, and it was a really fascinating conversation. Yeah, she worked alongside Dan and Alex in the creation of the series, right? So we kind of got like the journalistic muscle that they had brought to it with the docuseries and with what seemed like incredibly revealing interviews with Carl Lentz. Incredibly revealing. And it's fascinating because these days he, you know, when he was preaching, he was holding these sermons that looked more like rock concerts than they did church services. And now, you know, the cameras capture him as he goes to this run-of-the-mill advertising 
job reporting with his laptop in a cubicle like everybody else. So it's it's quite this fall from grace, but Carl and his wife, Laura, are very forthcoming on camera about their experience. Um, another thing we talked about was the Justin Bieber of it and sort of that fractured relationship and Carl's relationship with celebrity in general, which was pretty fascinating. Uh, well, I can't wait to hear about it. Let's hear your conversation with Stacey Lee. Hi, Stacey. I'm so excited to talk to you about The Secrets of Hillsong, um, which will be on FX and is based on the reporting of Vanity Fair's own Dan Adler and Alex French. Thank you for having me. Of course. Um, I, like many Americans, first became aware of Hillsong, I think, after 2010, after they founded that New York church office and after Carl Lentz sort of became this global phenomenon thanks to his relationships and friendships with Justin Bieber and Selena Gomez. But as as we see in your docuseries, the church goes back decades um, and it actually has this sort of scandalous origin story based in New Zealand in Australia. Um, and I'm wondering if you can sort of briefly recap that origin story that you you get into in the docuseries. And also, I'm curious when you first became aware of, of the church, because you're from New Zealand. Yeah, um, this is a great question. And, and honestly, that is the same journey I went on when I first, you know, was was given the kind of journalistic materials to look at. I moved to New York in 2010. So the exact same time that this church was blossoming within the streets of New York, I was moving to New York as well. Um, and I lived in New York for a period of like seven years, which really, you know, tracked the, the, the rise of Hillsong. So I lived in Williamsburg. <laughs> like I was in the vicinity of this church and probably a lot of the touch points just by the nature of working in film and culture and television. And so I knew of the church. It was always as everybody who's like, oh yeah, it's that Justin Bieber church. That was kind of my awakening for it too. And being a big music fan as well, I was hanging out at Irving Plaza as well. I was hanging out at a lot of the venues, listening to gigs probably on the Saturday night before church happened on the Sunday. So it was always kind of in the orbit of, uh, for a lot of people, like it just exists here. It's just that thing, the cool Christians go to, et cetera, et cetera. So when I first looked at the materials and started to understand, and I was like, oh, it's from Australia. And then, you know, started kind of looking deeper, then realizing it's, no, it's actually not from Australia. These are New Zealanders and it's been in New Zealand for a long time, uh, it just, obviously, it was quite shocking for me to have that realization that this had somehow followed the trajectory of a lot of my own life. Um, so the story in New York and the kind of growth of this church really goes back as far as the 1940s in New Zealand. New Zealand's an interesting place because we are so isolated on the other side of the world that when things do come there and they do, like, hit in a big way it's kind of like a petri dish it kind of grows in this like you know much much faster way than what it would in bigger countries where you've got lots of different sorts of things pollinating and I think 
that that's a lot of what happened with, you know, the early origins of Hillsong within New Zealand. Back then it was part of the Assemblies of God movement, which is like a Pentecostal evangelical movement. So it's the kind of church where it's very, uh, it's kind of like theatre. It's, it's show and tell and speaking in tongues and all these kind of things. And in the 50s and 60s, you know, we were having a backlash in our country to the Queen's Church, the Queen of England, you know, it's very strict. There's all these kind of boundaries. And this kind of church is like free flowing, free loving. It kind of parallels the hippie movement in a way. And so it really took off in New Zealand. And, you know, the founder or the kind of father figure at the heart of this church was a man named Frank Frank Houston, who had come up through the Salvation Army in the 1940s. And they're very much more loose styles of church. Their their kind of leadership structures and their systems of uh, governance aren't the same as a, a lot of other churches where you just have to have a calling. You have to decide you have a calling. You have to have this charisma. And people, you need, you know, really it's about the numbers, you know, following you and getting you behind. That speaks so much for your, I guess, religious authority. And this guy, Frank Houston, really had that. He was an incredibly forceful, powerful, fire and brimstone style preacher. He really grew this Assemblies of God movement in New Zealand. And I guess in a way that growth, you know, created, you know, this kind of flow on effect that he got more authority because there's more people coming. And so it became this kind of unstoppable force. And I think, you know, when that power when the numbers when this growth is happening it's very very hard to stop when there are moments of questioning like surely you can't be speaking out against a man of god all these other people you know think that he's worthy of it so you know what we began to learn retrospectively is there were people who were questioning there were people who were saying these things are happening within this church um So, you know, as this power is growing within the church, there is this underbelly of people who, you know, are having concerns. Things are happening in the church, particularly amongst the leadership, that don't feel right. You know, vulnerable communities are calling out uh, behaviors that are happening that, you know, aren't correct. And what we began to notice as a pattern over and over again is that people were willing to look the other way. The voices of anybody that criticized was a voice that was going against God. And flash forward to where we are in 2010s, 2020s Hillsong, those same behavior patterns, those same uh, notions of questioning or going against God become very, very complicated because who would question a church that has 150,000 people going to it and a hundred million, you know, dollars worth of business entities? It's the institution, you know, from the humble New Zealand origins with this charismatic figure, those same principles have kind of carried on throughout time because that same enforcement of we can't go against God these people are calling, they're chosen, and we can't speak out. That was a theme that we began to see over and over again. So when I discovered that New Zealand part of the story and started to see these patterns and then trace back to what we were learning in 2010s, 2020s, not just in New York, but in Australia, I, there, it was just incredible. It was, it was almost like looking at a blueprint. And I think for Dan and Alex and myself, as we were tracing the story, for us, it became about these patterns, these echoes throughout history that were happening at any point of conflict, at any point of possible um, negative PR. 
there was always this kind of, you know, lad, we must protect the church. We must protect the church. And I think what we look at just as a society in general is, you know, churches are meant to be a safe place. They're meant to be a haven. They're meant to be a space where people come together and feel protected and they're, they're meant to have their voices heard. You know, the church is for, serves God. It doesn't serve the pastor. And I think, you know, as we looked deeper within the story, I think some of those things very quickly became a little bit confused. The Run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowitz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. we support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> <Right>, nice. <laughs> Nikki, yes, it's been really great Chill being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOC. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I was so surprised by the scale of the story and how far back it goes. Um, mm-hmm. Carl Lentz is such a, a fascinating figure, though, and he sort of becomes involved when he goes to Australia and and enrolls in this Hillsong Leadership College and becomes friends with Bobby Houston's son, um, Bobby Houston being the founder of Hillsong. Um, and he, in Carl, Bobby finds this hugely charismatic figure. Um, and you have such incredible footage in the docu-series of Carl on stage um, giving these these sermons, I guess, to thousands, thousands of people. And I had heard so much about Hillsong, but I didn't really understand it until I saw that footage. And I saw him on stage because regardless of what you believe religiously, spiritually, he undeniably has a talent. He has some sort of charisma. I'm curious what you found in your research of him. What did you find fascinating? What did you learn about about that sort of charisma and, and charm? Because it does get so messy when you combine that sort of celebrity mm. appeal and allure with actual leadership. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was one of the big things myself and the editorial team wanted to do at the very beginning of the doc is there were a lot of people who were a part of this church and they're not stupid people. They felt a genuine connection, a calling. They were felt like they wanted to be a part of something, you know, and particularly in New York, you know, having lived there myself, when you first move there, it's a very lonely, isolating place. It's the place you go to find your dreams, to live your dreams. And this church, in a way, just its success and its proximity to celebrities and just the show itself, was incredibly attractive. And I really felt early on in the documentary, we wanted to show how incredible he was as a speaker. Like, as you said, you can be from any walk of life and any philosophical, spiritual belief set, and you can listen to that sermon and feel a human connection. And I think he was incredibly good at that. I think, you know, what 
gets called into question, you know, when his own behaviors came to be found out is like, how much of that is authentic? How much of that is real? Was this just a show? Was this just a facade? And I think for us, that was a large part of the journey we went on with Carl and with this, you know, documentary. Episode one obviously traces so much of that New York Carl story, because the reality is none of us would be talking about this if it didn't have Carl Lentz at the center of it. He really was magnetic. He really was charismatic. His way of connecting and real talking church in such a way that you could feel like he was talking to you specifically was very powerful. Um, And the elements of, you know, I think uh, one of the journalists says it in episode two, it's just like, the performance versus who you are the rest of the week. Those are the kind of things that are at odds. Um, so with Carl specifically, I think he himself had this duality. He had this, you know, as the weeks went on, as the crowds became bigger, as the services became more and more, as his kind of platform became bigger, there was this kind of almost a separation of self, you know, this duality between who he had to be on a Sunday versus kind of how, what it took to get to that Sunday every, the rest of the week. And unfortunately, you know, if you don't have the rest of your life buttoned up and you're in a high pressure situation, high stakes, a lot of money, people, power are involved, at some point it's going to crack. And I think that is really what we saw with the Carl Lentz story. So episode two really traces that behind the scenes trajectory. Like what are the systems in place that need to not only protect the pastor from himself, but also to prevent these kind of things from happening. And I think that's what we valued so much in the conversations we had with Carl is being able to actually like understand the mechanisms of church, separate the business from the church of it all and understand, I guess, where the lines begin to be crossed I think we can we see so many times these pastors falling from grace over and over again. And one of the the big goals I had going into this is why does this keep happening? Why is this a story of our time, you know? And so to be able to actually speak to someone who had had that full trajectory and speak about the things that weren't pretty, that were incredibly ugly, abuse, his own abuse accusations all of these kind of things and be able to understand the power mechanisms that are at play that are enabling these kind of behaviors to happen within a church environment. That was just incredibly important for us. You know, one of the tonal things that it was hard for us as well is you are speaking to someone who also that duality is the same a victim and a perpetrator by all accounts. So we were balancing a lot of that with with the way that we not only conducted the interviews, but also the way that we put the story together. Um, you know, we're not we're not coming into it with our own perspective. It was very much at all times as we talk about race, as we talk about sexuality, as we talk about abuse. We always re- wanted to be representative of all sides of the story and really let the audience make up their own minds about where things sit. Because I don't think it's pretty. I don't think it's easily untangled. And I still think there are so many elements that make it super complicated. And I think we wanted to show that 
this isn't cut and dry. He isn't just bad and, you know, excommunicated from the church. It is much deeper and much more complicated than that. And you you got the first interview with Carl and his wife, Laura, since they were fired from the church in 2020. But that doesn't really do justice to what we see on screen because they gave you complete access to their home, their lives. You follow them at the dinner table. We see Laura open up her diary at one point and read from it. They're talking about the affairs, realizing. Laura talks about realizing the moment she realized her uh, Carl was cheating on her and the effects that had on the family. What was the process like of gaining their trust and convincing them to participate in this docuseries? The process was um, slow, a lot of conversations, a, a lot of talking about the, the kind of parameters of what this is and what this could be. You know, it was, we wanted to make it very clear from the beginning that this wasn't a platform with which to, you know, it, this was a documentary where you would have to walk through the fire. You would have to answer for a lot of the things that people have said or accused you of or behaviors that happened over that 10-year period that, you know, really were problematic. That was the expectation. And, you know, truth be told, there were definite moments where this wasn't going to happen just because of the stakes. I think for Carl and Laura, um, it had been almost two years since they had spoken about any of this. You know, they were very abruptly fired. And rather than come out and, and you know, kind of uh, give their own perspective on every accusation that was coming out in the media, they just went quiet. They just disappeared and I guess went inside and figured out just their own personal dynamics, their family, what was going to happen with them, what was going to happen with their kids, all of those kinds of things. And around about the time where I think we started talking to them, which would have been about, you know, 18 months after it all went down, they were starting to think about that growing, I guess, stronger within their own familiar relationships but they were trying to think about like what would the next part look like you know and I think they very easily could have gone on Oprah and done their tell-all special but what we're talking about here is incredibly you know damning accusations they're they're not things that you can just walk back out and reinvent yourself all over again and we wanted to make that pretty clear when we approached them with this that Yes, this is going to be a chance for you to share your side of the story, but you are going to have to answer some incredibly tough questions because we are also, you know, hearing the full story. We're hearing all sides. And there are a lot of things that have been said that are really important to address as part of this documentary. If we're going to have any chance of understanding and just evolving this Hillsong story, we never, ever get the chance to see him behind the scenes of you know, the boardrooms and the behind the private conversations and things like that. And by bearing witness to those, we're able to learn a lot more about what the real values of this church were. Were they valuing the people? Were they valuing, you know, keeping people safe? Were they valuing equality? All of these kind of things that for so long this church had been this beautiful, glittery PR facade, being able to understand. I think they were at a point where they were just like, they were sick of the stories. They were sick of the correct controlled narratives. And I think when it had turned against them, when the narratives had been shifted and, you know, they themselves had been, you know, painted in not the most flattering light, I think they were for the first time on the other side of the fence, looking back at what they'd heard people had been, you know, experiencing for Hillsong for years. 
Um, and he's a powerful figure. He's got, you know, despite all of this, Carl has a lot of followings. He's still charismatic. He's still incredibly, you know, smart and um, incredible communicator. And I think he still has a lot to offer the world, irrespective of whether it's in church or not. And I think for him, you know, they wanted a chance to say their side of the story and answer to some of these things and perhaps do it differently to anything that had been done before. If this was going to have a chance of bringing real healing, it had to be honest. It had to be truthful. And I I had to ask questions over and over again in different sorts of ways because, yeah, of course, Carl's had press training. He's had PR training. He's had all of those kinds of things. So he, he himself had to break down some of those kind of innate automatic responses, those defense systems you know there was moments in the you see it in the series you know where he's having to be asked over and over again certain questions and he kind of that stuff starts to break down over time and I'm just thankful we got to that place you know (laughs) there are moments where you're listening to Carl and he is such a charming charismatic communicator you're thinking like am I being hoodwinked am I being sold some sort of message but he he does sort of break it down in the end. Um, what were you surprised by? Was I'm curious while filming with them if there was anything that you were surprised at beginning. I'd say Laura, Laura Lentz. You know, we had no. I we, there's not much content about Laura. There's not a lot that exists in the world prior to meeting them. So we didn't. And this is a woman who has been betrayed on so many levels like I did not know what it was going to be like I don't know I did not know if she was going to be defensive if she was just going to be like I don't want any of this and from the first time I met her she was incredibly warm and just so open they were both of them were to be honest like very very uh just they had a lot to say you just got the sense that there was just you know, where to begin. And you feel that obviously in that opening scene with Carl when he sits down in the interview chair and I sort of just get him to introduce himself and he can't like, what's at stake when he sits in that chair? Like the years, all of the, the, the you know, you know what it's like when you've got all these things that you just want to spit out and say and you just don't even know where to begin. I really felt that with him, like where to begin of all the stuff that's happened, of all the stuff that's been said about me, but of all the stuff that I need to speak to, like what are the first things that happen? And and it was the same with Laura, but to your question, she was, I think for me, I didn't know how much of her side of the story we were going to get. I did not know how willing she was going to be to talk about the affairs. Like this is very uh, raw material she's talking about. And it's also not, not, not exactly... I would say flattering maybe like it's not the, the it's not awesome to hear that your husband's having an affair and now the whole world knows about it and somehow that reflects badly on you but she was really willing to go there and she was willing to go there in such a way that I was able to I just hadn't heard the you know the the betrayed perspective before I don't think there's been a lot of time in film and TV world where we actually talk to the person that's hurt the most you know like Carl's the glittery shiny one Carl's the the person that everyone wants to hear from but in actual fact like I think the loneliest person in a church is quite often the pastor's wife they see everything they're right at the heart of it but yet they have so little uh, of a platform to kind of express themselves so that was actually the most fascinating part to me I always knew that I I wanted to empower that side of the story I wanted to 
I wanted there to be um, a sense of strength in 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 terms of what she'd walked through and what she'd experienced. And also there's elements too where, you know, in terms of the abuse accusations and stuff where she also had to answer some, you know, hard questions too in terms of her role within, you know, the dynamics that were happening within her own household. And we we confronted those, we talked about those and tried to untangle those as best we could. And I feel like, you know, the journey you go on with Laura Lentz to whether she's going to stay with Carl, her thought making process and what, 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 what are, what are, what is, what does a healthy relationship like this guy's cheated on me. What means to say he's not going to do it again. I, I really, I really felt like that was such fresh insight. You know, I didn't see this. This isn't the insight about the heart of the church, but it's certainly, you know, the pastor's daughter, the pastor's wife, someone who's the closest to the heart of this church, probably more than anyone else. And she had a lot to right. say. <laughs> um, there was one moment that struck me. Um, I think it's, I don't, I don't forget which episode, but it's, we're watching an interview of Justin Bieber and Carl, and um, it speaks to Carl's influence and power that Justin Bieber is probably the most, one of the most famous people in the world. And in the interview, he's just absolutely fawning and gushing over Carl and fanboying. Um, I'm curious how much Carl felt that his celebrity might have, you know, aided in that self-destruction. Did he get swept away in his own celebrity? He like he was very adamant over and over again to point out that it, like he he just did not like the title. Well, he he told me he did not like the title celebrity pastor. Um, he did not like that that became overtook the other things that he was doing. He he you know within the interviews itself, even directing conversation towards Justin Bieber and things like that was a very, like, I could just, you could see the tension. He, he did not want to talk about it. I think they did have a very close relationship. Uh, he lived at their house for many, many months during some of the darkest times of Bieber's life, you know. Uh, they traveled the world together. And I think that it's a real pain point for Carl, what happened ultimately with their relationship. And I think that's, I think, something that he's still probably reckoning with a little bit. And it also just makes the celebrity aspect and what his legacy is that that's what everyone knows him for now is the celebrity pastor that fell from grace you know that just I can that just he doesn't doesn't like that that. (laughs) he doesn't obviously but you know that is in a way the the fame the growth of his church the growth of his own platform you know those things were part of it a huge part of it so unfortunately you also have to look at the downsides of that too and you have to explore what that meant, you know, in terms of him getting follow around, in terms of the fact the celebrity becomes who he is. I don't know. He also birthed that celebrity pastor culture. You know, you look at all the pastors, young, wearing the same kind of glasses, wearing the same kind of style that followed in his wake. There was a pioneering aspect to kind of what he did as well, which it hasn't gone away. It hasn't you know? <laughs> gone away, right. He had Selena Gomez. He had Justin Bieber, was a close friend. I think pretty soon after he was fired, Justin Bieber put out a statement saying, you know, he was no longer part of the Hillsong Church. Were you able to get in any insight into that particular friendship breakup? Or did Carl just sort of shut down that line of questioning? Um, he wasn't that open to talking about it. But, you know, I would say that 
Cal um, Bieber saw, Justin saw Cal as a father figure. You know, he, I don't think you need to look very far to see that Justin doesn't have many role models. You know, there's not a lot of, you know, especially at that time of people that he can trust that are are modeling a kind of life that gives him some stability. And I think, you know, to hear those revelations, it doesn't just put a chink in Carl's armor. It also puts a chink in Justin's own credibility for, you know, being so closely associated with someone like that. I think it really hurts, I think, his his own brand to a certain degree as well when uh, he's reinventing himself as within the Christian landscape and then to have the pastor that you're so closely associated with fall for the reasons that, you know, pop stars also fall. Right. <laughs> I don't think it, I don't think it kind of bodes well for anyone. So Hillary, now we're going to hear the conversation you had with Ken Marino, who has been absolutely everywhere on television basically his entire career, but is having an especially prolific spring and a really funny one from what I hear about both Party Down and the other two. Yes. So Ken Marino, um, beloved character actor, he's a comedian. Uh, He got his start on the state back in the 90s um, and has been everywhere, like you said, throughout his career. He has an Emmy for Children's Hospital, um, the late great Adult Swim show. Um, And yeah, right now he's on both The Other Two and Party Down, uh, which just returned after a decade-long hiatus on Starz. I feel like there's nobody he plays like Flop Sweat better than Ken Marino. Um, He (laughs) is great at physical comedy. He's great at playing these like kind of desperate but still lovable men. Um, So yeah, we we had I had a blast talking to him about that. And about the toll of a physical comedy on a 50-something actor, which is a little more a little more taxing, maybe, as he uh, continues in his career. Hillary, I think you're someone who has a lot of respect for the really dark comedies that are dominating television right now, but uh, has said that like these two shows in particular and Ken Marino's work kind of bring back just like the straight up funny aspect of TV comedy. And I hope you gave him proper praise for that. Yeah, that's definitely something that came up in this conversation, too. Um, There are so many great comedies right now or great shows that call themselves comedies, but don't actually, like, you know, make you laugh or have jokes. Um, (laughs) And uh, that's something that's something that, you know, used to be kind of the hallmark of a comedy. So it's uh, it's fun. It was fun to talk to Ken about that. Um, And yeah, just these are two of the like most laugh out loud shows, I would say, on TV right now, like they will make you laugh in a way that, you know, maybe some of the more uh, Emmy front-running comedies uh, right now will not necessarily. Although I also think that they should also both be front-runners for Emmys. Let me say that as well. Well, that's what we're here for. We have that power. To, at least we can we can lift people up to the extent that we can. <laughs> we decide, right? <laughs> I think, I think we nominate shows. democracy works. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, let's hear um, all about that and more in your conversation with Ken Marino. Hello, I'm here with Ken Marino, star of Party Down, star of The Other Two, who casually moved an Emmy out of the way <laughs> before we began this conversation. <laughs> I'm sorry, I that has to be a part of this interview. <laughs> I did witness it. I tried, well, but it was before the interview. So, I mean, it was just our little secret until now. <laughs> but also an Emmy winner for Children's Hospital. Well, our show won an Emmy. Our but show. you you have the statuette. I have a statue because I was a producer one season. I mean, a number of seasons and one of the seasons that won. 
I the, the the show one, and so I I have an Emmy. All right, and moved it out of the way so that it wouldn't be weird. And now I have gone and made it weird again. So I'm sorry, Ken Marino. No worries. <laughs> we can uh, we can shift the conversation to talk a little bit about Party Down, um, since yes. that is really why why you're here. Um, Party Down, great show on Stars. The revived uh, version of it aired. This winter, you play Ron Donald, um, the owner of the catering company. He's sort of the the personification of Flop Sweat. Like if, if Flop Sweat were a man, I feel like it would be Ron. Um, a great description of Ron. And yeah, I mean, the show uh, became a cult hit after airing a couple of seasons back in the aughts. Um, I, I understand you never really thought it would come back, but uh, but here, here you are. It, it happened after all those years of people saying maybe it was going to happen. Yeah, I feel like as soon as I stopped believing in the possibility of it happening, it happening, it it uh, happened. So I guess there's a moral to that story, which is stop believing in things, and then they'll uh, they'll appear. So tell me, how did you learn that Party Down was returning? Where where were you? What were the circumstances? Well, we we had um, we you know we kept talking about it for many years, and then. We sort of stopped talking about it for a while. And then I think we just got an email from uh, the producers, uh, Rob Thomas and John Ambaum and uh, Dan Etheridge and Paul Rudd and saying, it seems like we're going to do it. Are you guys available? Would you want to do it? And of course, all of us immediately responded yes. And and then they said, all right, we're going to try to figure something out. And then it took about, about a year to make it happen. When you stepped back into this role, it had been, you know, a decade. Um, did it take a while to get back into the mindset of Ron? Did you feel like you kind of snapped back right away? No, I feel like I snapped back right away. I mean, there's Ron has always been in there and inside my my brain and heart and soul. And so... In your haircut? In my haircut. Well, the haircut had to change mm-hmm. um, uh, to be more Ron. So that was the biggest change. Everything else was sort of locked and loaded, ready to go. Um, yeah, and you do, I mean, the character has always been like the the heart of the show. And also um, you do so much like really extreme physical comedy that's, you know, just really, really funny and seems like it's probably difficult to do on the show. Ron goes through through so much. He breaks a finger. He loses his sense of taste and smell after having COVID four times. He has this uh, this terrible like gastrointestinal episode in one of the episodes of the season. I mean, is is there a moment where you you say like, can they give Ron a break or do you just like want them to push as hard as possible? No, on the contrary, I would I'd love when they give give me that stuff. I love give Ron that stuff because it's fun stuff to play. And the more physical it is, the more excited I think I get because I enjoy <laughs> for lack of a better description, using my whole body to kind of represent Ron. And I enjoy physical comedy. I always have. And so anytime I get to kind of, um, w- when there's a scene or a, or a story or arc, story arc with where Ron has to go through some stuff, you know, I'm always thinking about how I can represent that, you know, both through his dialogue and, and how I can kind of show it through movement and all that stuff. Do you feel like you have to amp yourself up for those scenes or you're just, you know, you're already there? I think I'm already there. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I have to go find, I know, I guess, I guess I have to amp myself up. I mean, some of them are 
pretty uh, exhausting scenes. Especially- what was the most exhausting of this uh, season three? I would probably say the food poisoning one because it, it just I was constantly straining and and falling and struggling to walk and hitting the ground and bouncing back up and um also the when I when when um, um James Marsden uh shakes my hand and I collapse on the table we did a number of versions of that and I kept slamming my face onto the table which was just a table <laughs> and so that hurt a little bit. I remember feeling it the next day. You know, it's like when you work out and then the next day you, you're you sore, you're like, you're proud of it. You're like, ah, I worked out. So when you, when I'm sore after after shooting something, I'm, I'm excited about it because I'm like, oh, all right, I really worked yesterday. You just like go home and like pop some Advil and get ready to do it again? No, Advil, just, uh, no, I like to, like, I like to feel the, the hurt, the pain of it. As it uh, reminds me that I did something fun and, and um, you know, I, I committed to it. Um, and there's also uh, an episode in this season that you directed, uh, which is episode four. Um, did you choose that one? Um, did you uh, just say that you wanted to direct an episode and the chips kind of fell on that one? How did how did that one? Well, yeah, no, I, I was just, um, you know, on the list of their directors who were directing that season. And so they kind of they usually figure out a way to do it where I am light in the episode before so I can prep to shoot the episode. But I think I was, I actually don't think I was supposed to get that episode, but then something happened where we had to switch full episodes around. There was like a, a COVID thing early on. And so we pushed a week and then we had to shoot a Jane, a later Jane episode earlier so I don't know if I was supposed to get that one until uh, we moved everything around. But I'm glad I did because it was a fun one to do. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, extremes in it as well for other people this time, not just for Ron. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it, you know, the, the trick of that one was to not have everybody, you know, to, to have everybody be sort of specific about the mushroom trip that they were taking, their their specific journey. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was a fun you know episode to tackle and, and to try to try to be a little more nuanced with the different mushroom trips that each one to each person takes. Mm-hmm. Um, Zoe Chow, uh, we spoke to her, uh, one of our writers for a story earlier. Um, she said uh, that when, when you're directing, you're very physical. She said, it feels like you need a camelback when you're acting in one of his episodes. Can you talk a little bit about your, uh, your kinetic Wait, approach? It feels like you need a what? A camelback, like one of those backpacks with the water. Oh. <laughs> well, I like to make my days. I pride myself on not going over uh, while still trying to get as much material as I can. Uh, so when we're in the edit, we have a lot of options. So in order to do that, um, I like us to continue to be moving throughout the day. I don't like downtime. So I try to have as very little downtime as possible. Uh and I try to alert everybody, uh, you know, uh, behind the camera and in front of the camera that that's how I approach stuff. But I think that that ultimately creates good performances because for me as an actor, I don't like waiting between takes. I like to, you know, uh, w- once I get going, I like to stay lathered up and like, you know, continue running, like continue doing the the stuff because then I can, then I'm in it. 
But the stopping and starting is, is I think, you know, detrimental to performance at times. Um, and so I like to keep everybody, you know, um, going as much as possible. And so, yes, that's, yeah, you probably do need a little, um, you need to stay hydrated. <laughs> I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. In a profile of you that I read also, um, this quote stuck out to me. Martin Starr said that he told you after season one, I didn't like his performance and anything I could seen, I had seen him in before, before we started working together. But after working with him on the show, he is by far the best character. How, how did it feel to hear that from your co-star? Well, I know Martin, I know everything Martin says comes from a place of love. And when he said that to me, I knew what he was, what he was ultimately trying to say, which is he was, he really liked what I was doing on, on the show. I don't know what he watched prior to <laughs> that. And I don't, you know, so I wasn't, I wasn't offended by that. I don't think. Do that you think that, that he's a, a closet Dawson's Creek fan? Maybe. Maybe he didn't like my stuff. He didn't like professor, uh, professor Wilder's um, arc on, <laughs> on Dawson's. Um, but, uh, but what he said to me and what he said, since is always you know he always he said he's got such a big heart um but he hides it with uh, a lot of um you know dry kind of sarcastic humor but he is the sweetest sweetest man and so when he said that to me i was touched yeah that that does kind of make it sound though that there is not a little bit of roman in him in real life i mean are your co-stars on party down similar to who they play on screen I think everybody has a sense of, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a part of who the actor is in, in those characters. I think that that's why everybody connects to those characters in some way. Um, Do you feel like you are like Ron in some ways or? I think there are elements of Ron that I relate to and that I kind of connect to. I mean, uh, you know, at times he's anxious about stuff and he's, he's needy and he's, you know, he, he feels like he's got a big black cloud over his head and he's fighting to get out, and, but he's hopeful and he's optimistic. And there are elements of those character traits and things that I can relate to at certain points in my life. And so, but I'm, I mean, you know, I think, I don't, I don't think you could talk to any actor who says, well, I don't relate to anything that this character, I mean, I guess unless you're playing Hitler. But like, but, you know, even, even, you know, even with that, like you have to find some, something, I guess, right. You can't just a hundred percent make it up. It's got to come from a real place. Right. I would hope so. I would, I would think so. Um, And uh, I mean, do you think that the show will let Ron, like if, you know, if there is a season four, if, if it continues on, do you think the show will ever like let Ron get a win? Do you think that that would just be too anti, like anti what Ron is? Well, I mean, I feel like, I feel like Ron does get little wins. It's just that he gets these gigantic, you know, shit sandwiches fed to him, you know, (laughs) shit pies in the face 
while he gets a win. So like, you know, he he did at the end of the season reach the goal he was hoping for, which is sort of running the business and getting a good connection for, you know, bigger events and stuff like that. And he can smell again. He can smell again. So, you know, there's little wins. So every step forward he takes, you know, yeah, sure, there's 17 steps backwards that happen. But, like, he does he does keep, you know, taking little baby steps forward that uh, help him. And, um, yeah, so, I mean, in, in the in the tone of Party Down, they I think they will continue if, if they ever, if we do another season, you know, they'll continue to, you know, give him little wins. But then also, you know, I don't know, electrocute him in a bathtub or something. I'm not sure what they do. Yeah, uh, Streeter on the other two um, is is similarly similar to Ron in some ways in that he's you know not he's kind of kind of desperate in some ways certainly desperate for affection um, but seems maybe like he has a bit of a better head on his shoulders. Yeah, Streeter is a little bit uh, smarter and a little bit more savvy. He's uh, sort of a you know in terms of the business, he's a little bit of a mad genius just when you think he doesn't know what the hell he's talking about you realize he understands exactly what's going on and he just his moves are um a little cryptic at times but um yeah he's i guess he would be a little bit more needy and ron is more just kind of desperate but streeter's just looking for you know a connection uh with the family ultimately deep down that's what he 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 wants he wants to feel like he's part of a family, whereas Ron is, you know, all about, you know, achieving a goal and moving forward and constantly kind of fighting through this, you know, the constant crap that's thrown at him. And he wants, I guess he wants approval in terms of, you know, his his status, mm-hmm. you know, which is important. Yeah. And I mean, I I do want to also like emphasize something that might maybe be getting lost in this uh, description of these men who are, you know, kind of sad and needy um, is that both of these shows are very, very funny um, and have a lot of have a lot of jokes, which is something that I feel like a ton of comedies right now don't. Yeah, I agree. I, I think I'm enormously lucky to be on two shows that two comedies that are you know, the jokes per minute are ridiculous. So they're super funny, but they somehow manage to balance, you know, balance it with like real heart and real pathos and, and like real warmth. And so I definitely pinch myself at times, you know, because I, I recognize that I have been given this gift of these two shows that I'm a part of and these two characters that I get to play that are on really, really funny, funny shows that people connect to and I think they connect to it because not only are they funny but they're there's a, a you know a warmth and a, a and it's and they have a lot of heart to them as well um and uh on the other two also uh you get to share so many scenes with Molly Shannon who seems like she must just be incredible to work with could you say a little bit about I mean she's uh, as your most frequent scene partner um I feel like you guys must know each other pretty well at this point what's it like to work with her Molly is exactly what you think Molly would be. She's the kindest, sweetest, zaniest, most wonderful person. And then she's so focused on, you know, making it the best it can be and finding the truth in it and finding the absurdity in it. And and she's the consummate professional. She's wonderful. I have, I mean, to be honest with you, I get to work with Wanda Sykes. I mean, just, just like, 
the, the, these queens of comedy, right? I get to work with Wanda Sykes. I get to work with Molly Shannon. I get to work with Jane Lynch. I get to work with uh, Megan Mullally. That's crazy. And then I get, you know, Zoe Chow. I, I get to do stuff with Jennifer Garner. I get to do stuff with, um, I mean, Helena York. Like, there's these, just these, like, every person I just named is insanely talented. And the fact that I get to be in scenes with them is sort of like, you know, I could check that off my, my bucket list. But Molly yeah. is incredible. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I don't want to ask you if there's going to be a season four of Party Down because I feel like you, you know, probably know as much as, I mean, you know more than a layperson on the street, but probably don't have a, a concrete answer to that. So instead, I will ask, uh, is there going to be a third Wet Hot American Summer Netflix uh, reunion show? I mean, that would be fun. I have no idea. I don't know about any of these things. I just, I, you know, I hope for them. And then most times they don't happen. And like I said in the beginning, as soon as I stop believing and <laughs> stop thinking about it, all of a sudden I get a phone call or an email saying, hey, let's do this thing. So, you know, again, life lesson, stop believing in things. <laughs> I did. You were uh, reunited with uh, Joe Latruglio and uh, David Wayne on History of the World Part 2, I saw. So that was, I guess, uh, maybe an inadvertent any reunion, yeah. I mean, I would love to do The State again. I don't even want to put it out there because if I put it out there, it definitely won't happen. But <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, I would love to. I would love – I think that there are so many people in that group that have built such a wonderful career individually. And I think we all care for each other. And I think there is a want to for us to get together and do like a, you know, another short run of, a, of, of our sketch comedy. I think it would probably be better than what we did back when we were younger because we're all a little wiser and smarter and still willing to hurt ourselves. <laughs> if uh, everybody or just you? I guess just me, but um, I, I, I'll walk in a wall. I'll walk into a wall for for a laugh until, uh, I guess, um, you know, I'm dead. That does it for today's show. We'll be back on Thursday. In the meantime, you can find us at VanityFair.com. You can find Richard and Rebecca's ongoing can coverage, and you can find a lot more of our coverage of the Secrets of Hillsong documentary. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. And on our own, I am at Katie Rich and Hillary. Hillabuster. And Julie. Julie W. Miller. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Chris Murphy. I'm Richard Lawson. And I'm Hillary Busis. We are from Vanity Fair's Still Watching Podcast. Next up, we're watching the new HBO show, The Regime. Madam Chancellor, let's keep the gloves on. This is not a confrontation. We're just saying what's true. Academy Award winner Kate Winslet is our chancellor as she leads a faux European autocracy in turmoil. We'll be watching week by week as the regime unravels. And we'll be talking to the stars along the way. New episodes of Still Watching will drop every Sunday after the regime airs. 